With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the Unsolved Colonial Parkway Murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Welcome to this bonus episode of Mind Over Murder. My name is Bill Thomas. My co-host Kristen Dilley and I have been talking about the importance of certain developments in the forensic space in terms of solving cold cases like the Golden State Killer case and hundreds of cases that have come since. One of the key developments in forensic science has been the use of investigative genetic genealogy. One of the leading companies to move forward this sort of advanced testing is Othram, a DNA lab located in Houston, Texas, in the Woodlands, who work to help identify unidentified remains, homicide victims, sexual assault victims, and the like. They have been incredibly successful and are breaking cases across the country. Kristen and I thought it would be interesting to revisit a series of interviews we did with Othram CEO David Middleman. So with his permission, we wanted to rerun a couple of interviews that we did earlier this year with David. We hope you enjoy this bonus episode of Mind Over Murder featuring David Middleman of Othram. Thanks and we'll see you next time. Welcome to Mind Over Murder. I'm Kristen Dilley. And I'm Bill Thomas. And we're joined today by David Middleman, founder of Othram. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to go ahead and start with me quoting you to you. Are you ready? (laughs) Sure. How's that work again? So, David, in some of the written documents that you put together about Othram, you discussed the term silent mass disaster as it relates to the accumulation of cold cases in this country. 
Can you expand on that concept? Why is it a silent mass disaster? Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. And I, I stole that term from the National Institute of Justice. So I'm, I'm using a term that they came up with. But the silent mass disaster is this accumulation of folks. There's thousands of folks that go unidentified, you know, remains that are found. Many are victims of crimes. Some, some are not victims of crimes. But nonetheless, these unidentified remains are found. They've, they've not been attributed to somebody. And a good number of them don't get attributed to somebody. So they kind of build up in this backlog of unidentified persons. And it's, um, it's, it's really an inspiration for why the NIJ put together the NamUs Project. NamUs Project seeks to ca- catalog the unidentified and the missing, then to kind of match them up. And other groups like uh, Doe Network, for example, which is a, a huge volunteer group that Todd Matthews operates, you know, again, seeks to catalog and identify so these, these cases don't get lost and people remember the case and, and will at some point hopefully work to connect these unidentified folks back to a name. So it's, it's kind of a disaster in the sense that it's, it's a substantial number of cases. And as you can imagine, over the years, that adds up to tens of thousands of people that are not reconnected back to their families and, and families that in turn don't know what happened to their loved ones. And silent, perhaps because of a lot of reasons. First of all, I can tell you before I jumped into this field of forensics, I, I certainly wasn't aware that there's this gigantic backlog of uh, cases that hasn't been solved and folks that have not been identified. And I think maybe another way to think about the silent part of this is that you know, it's, it's very hard to advocate or even really humanize a story that involves an unknown person. It's hard to seek justice for someone you don't know, especially if you don't know who they are. You can't figure out even leads as to how they may have ended up as they did. But it's even hard to, like, um, get other people fired up about it. These are, these are you know, generally you, you, you rally around folks that you understand, you, you understand their plight, and then you want to go do something to make the situation better. You, you have people here that have died, sometimes in unclear circumstances, and you don't know them. In our experience at DNA Solves, you know, generally we tend to get interest for unidentified remains, you know, based really on geography. So someone maybe grew up in a certain part of the country. And, and when they find out there's an unidentified person in their hometown, they, 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 they kind of bond over the common uh, place of origin and they want to help that way. But it is really hard to understand and connect until you know who they are. And, and so, and then of course, once you know who they are, there's a whole story that unravels a family that's almost always waiting for them. I think that's the breakdown of the silent mass disaster. It's this extraordinary number of cases that have been unaddressed, the lack of awareness around them, and, and the difficulty in even trying to like tell that story to folks and, and to get folks to connect just because they're by the very nature unidentified. I know a lot of times, David, we'll reference the CODIS system, the FBI, DOJ, CODIS system as a place where DNA evidence is taken to for comparison in the hope of identifying perpetrators or victims. Why is the CODIS system not enough to assist law enforcement in searching for DNA profiles like in the examples you were providing? Yeah, it's it's a good question. The CODIS system was designed with a specific purpose in mind. And so like all good things that are designed with a specific purpose that then go on to fulfill that purpose, uh, sometimes you know people try to use them for other things too. And it, it may not work as well outside of its intended purpose. So the idea behind CODIS is that you have members of society that go on to commit crimes and, and they'll perhaps continue to commit the crimes. Like you can imagine a serial sex assault and or, or a serial robbery. So someone might commit a crime in Houston, Texas, and if they're convicted, uh, you can take this set of STR markers, 20 markers that make up your CODIS profile, and you can deposit them into CODIS. 
And then if that person in Houston goes on to commit a crime, say in San Francisco, in California or somewhere else, maybe they come to New York and, and, and commit a crime, then if they can get DNA from the crime scene and, and measure those same 20 markers, they can connect the same person to multiple crimes. So the idea behind CODIS is that you're tracking repeated offenses by folks that you know have committed the, you know, an offense. So CODIS is a lot less about identifying who someone is as it is about trying to basically track repeat crime. Or if you don't know who the person is, being able to connect crimes. Another really powerful feature of CODIS is that if you've got a bunch of crime scenes and you don't know who the, the, the culprit is, but you happen to have measured the CODIS markers in all of those crime scenes, you can connect the crime scenes. You can say, were these 20 crimes or are they one crime committed by a serial predator? So that's what CODIS is designed for. It links crime scenes together and evidence together. And it can also be used, like I said, to, to track repeated behavior by someone that has been already known to the system as one that has committed a crime. What CODIS is not good at doing is, for example, identifying unknown remains, right? Because these folks, in addition to not being repeat criminals, are generally not criminals at all. They're, they're often victims of crimes. And so, not surprisingly, the success rate of using CODIS to work an identity for an unknown person, unidentified remains, is somewhere under 1%. You could run 100 STR profiles on 100 unidentified remains and identify less than one of them. You know, and so that's, that's the problem. But that's, that's not really a, a flaw of CODIS as much as it's just not the intended use case of CODIS. Likewise, there are criminals that go on to commit crimes that have either not been caught yet, or, or they have not committed a lot of crimes, or they may have committed crimes a long time ago before CODIS was widely used. They might have slipped through the cracks. They were supposed to get added to CODIS because they committed a crime, but they, they just they didn't make its way through either on purpose or by accident. And so all of those scenarios are cases where CODIS would not detect the actual identity of a, of a suspect as well. And so if you look at like the sex assault kit backlog, 15% of these kits will produce uh, an identity. There's definitely room to be desired. You know, it leaves room for improvement and a lot to be desired and using other approaches to identify you know, who, who these folks are. That's really the issue with CODIS. Is, but the thing is, CODIS is the only forensic tool that we've had until recently. So that's the tool they had and that's the tool they used. And fortunately, there are a lot of new tools that can be used in cooperation with CODIS in parallel to CODIS or after CODIS to help get more information. Just like nowadays, people will look at lots of lines of evidence besides just DNA. They look at fingerprints if they're available. They try to do facial reconstructions. There's a lot of tools that, that these folks will use to try to piece together clues to the identity of someone. CODIS is just one of those tools. And, and certainly the work we do at Authorum is another tool. And, and, and I hope that investigators will make use of whatever tools they need to get these cases solved uh, successfully. So, David, what is the difference between how Othram builds DNA profiles and how CODIS builds DNA profiles? There's two big differences. The first difference is the CODIS profile, as we talked about, is composed of about 20 markers, and that, that works for the purposes intended for. What we do at Othram is we're collecting tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers. So that's the first difference is we're collecting more information and more markers. And that's powerful in detecting more distance kinds of relationships. And that's important because the person you're looking for may not be in a database. As we discussed, if they're a victim, they're probably not in CODIS. And these extra markers allow you to then identify nearest of kin or, or distant relatives that could help walk back to an identity. The first difference is 20 versus tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers. The second difference 
is that we use a technology platform that we've developed that is just inherently more sensitive. So we can take a more broader kind of set of inputs. And so even when there's very little DNA left or it's highly degraded, if something else has compromised the ability to do an efficient uh, DNA test, we can work from the sorts of DNA evidence that, that most folks would not be able to access. And a good example of that um, most recently is, I think it was about a week ago that we announced that we were able to build a profile for and identify uh, a suspect in the, in the rape and murder of a 14-year-old girl in Vegas. There was DNA evidence at the time, but it's been used. It's been consumed over the years for CODIS testing, for other kinds of testing. And they were down to just a very small amount. It would be like the equivalent of about you know, 15 cells, just very tiny amount of DNA left. And we were able to access that. So those are your two differences. We try to accept the most broadly available kind of uh, sorts of evidence possible because we want to be as inclusive as possible for all uh, unsolved crimes. And then, and then the other things that we're collecting more information from this, you know, challenging evidence. We think you're being modest here, David. In the Stephanie Isaacson case that you just mentioned, that's a record now for the smallest amount of DNA evidence ever identified. Or am I correct? That would be the least amount of DNA that someone's used uh, with forensic genetic genealogy uh, to catch a suspect. And we, we caught, you know, what we ended up doing is, is, is finding a perpetrator in a sex assault. And so, you know, you can imagine more than one person in that, in that mixture, right? There's, there's a little bit of a suspect and, uh, and victim in there. You're working from a record low amount of DNA and you're applying forensic genetic genealogy. So at least as far as it pertains to the use of forensic genetic genealogy, that would be a record low amount of DNA that's been reported anyways. I'm not aware of any sex assault that has been solved with fewer than uh, 15 cells. It's pretty We're not looking to try to beat that. I, I actually, I always tell, I always tell agencies, you know, we're also happy to accept lots of DNA. So don't, <laughs> don't feel obligated to give us the cases that have almost no DNA. We love the ones with lots of DNA too. <laughs> For the, those of us that are not scientists, previous DNA testing and some DNA testing that's done now actually consumes the DNA is what you were saying. Yeah, all, all DNA testing. The DNA testing that I do at Authorum, anytime you're analyzing DNA, you're, you're testing it at Authorum anywhere. You're, you're consuming it. You're destroying it forever and you never get it back. What's really important, and this may be another thing that distinguishes author many ways from other laboratory test methods, is that all of our methods are tuned to consume as little DNA as possible because when that DNA is gone, it's gone forever. I don't think that's appreciated. Like, even if there's plenty of DNA, we still try to use record low amounts of DNA because there's just no sense, there's no reason to go burn through DNA. You may or may not need it later in the future. There may be new tests that get developed. So the idea is how can you get the most information possible from the least amount of input evidence? And, and that's a, it's a, it's a very big priority for us. And so there was obviously more DNA available in this, in this case in Vegas, this, this, this girl, Stephanie Isaacson, that was murdered. But, you know, over the years, as that DNA was tested, that DNA is consumed and it's destroyed. So there was not a lot of DNA left at the end. And we took the last of it. So anyways, I'm obviously very happy given that we took the last of it, that we got the outcome that we got. And again, I think the, the reason it's worth mentioning, you know, kind of a record for the sake of a record is not, not that interesting. But what I think this tells us is that there's cause for optimism because when you can solve a sex assault that's been dormant and kind of stalled for 30 years from, you know, the equivalent of about 15 human cells, right? That gives you a lot of optimism because if you were to look at all the sex assaults out there that have more than 15 cells, there's probably a lot of them. 
that's where I really see the, the opportunity is like, there's a cause for excitement here, at least for tempered optimism, that we should go back and look at other cases that have, as they say, low amounts of DNA and see, and maybe some can't be worked, but what if there are some that can be worked? Technology changes all the time. Let's make sure that we don't leave any sex assault behind and try to really dig in if we have evidence into, into what we can do to generate even the slightest of a lead that would help take the case from unsolved to solved. And that, of course, is a matter of great hope and optimism for those of us who have followed the Colonial Parkway murders case for as long as Bill has, certainly. Um, <laughs> you know, we have the Robin Edwards and David Nobling evidence that we know has been degraded by water, uh, seawater, in some cases, river water. And we are hoping that the DNA can still be tested. So whenever we hear about a case like this from you, David, we are very, very pleased because there is still hope, I think, for um, an excellent outcome with this case. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and again, not every case can be solved with this method, and that's okay because there'll be new methods that get developed. But when you can work extreme low quantities of DNA or excessive degradation or cases that date back to 1881, you know, when you can do that kind of stuff, there's definitely a cause for optimism. Your company has been building their own database, DNA Solves. So can you give us a quick rundown of how DNA Solves is similar to other genealogical databases and how it's different? DNA Solves, we, we started DNA Solves in 2019. This is actually before GenMatch was purchased. It was the early days. And I think this technique being as powerful as it is, there, there, there needs to be you know, public participation to bring data in and, and so on and so forth. And so, so we thought you know, creating a portal and, and I think one of the early questions about GEDmatch and all genealogical databases is like, how do you properly consent folks? They had come for genealogy reasons, but they're, they're now being asked to help in another reason. And so when we first started this, this was kind of in the early days, our idea was, why not create an opportunity for folks to contribute to volunteer their data, but with a very clear kind of objective from day one? So there's nothing you can do in DNA Solves. I, don't, I do not think that DNA Solves is properly described as a genealogical database. There's no genealogy to be done in the sense that, like, there's no public searching. You don't find relatives. Uh, we don't return really any information. And so, so DNA Solves is a different kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, a repository of profiles from folks that, um, you know, maybe you're missing someone in your family and you're hoping that if, if law enforcement crawls through all the unidentified, they'll build a profile they can match it up against. So I think the better way to think about DNA Solves is DNA Solves is similar to the missing and unidentified databases that our government and other governments have tried to assemble. The difference is instead of using 20 markers, right, we're using, you know, SNPs. And that's where the idea of genealogy comes in. We're using the kind of profiles you would use in genealogy, but for the purpose of identifying people from crime scenes. And if you've ever been to dnasolves.com, I don't think there's any confusion about why you're there. It says very clearly, right, it's a database for solving crime. And we make it very clear everywhere from the webpage to the imagery, to the terms of service, it's all about identifying people from crime scenes, either victims or perpetrators. And also, you know, we don't do anything else. So, so neither DNA Solves nor Authorum is involved in, let's say, like medical research or other areas. Like it's a very singular focus to this one thing. So my, my sense on the matter is if you have DNA that you uh, want to share, DNA data that you want to share, and you want to help solve a crime, then, then you should participate and you should pick the database that you feel most comfortable participating in. And if it's a database that does lots of things, then you should be sure to opt in, obviously, because just, just uploading your information is not enough. If you come to DNA Solves, it'll only be used for this one purpose. 
So I definitely am on the side of encouraging folks that want to participate. I think if you're missing someone in your family, this is the best time ever to go participate because unless you are missing someone that's a direct relative, you know, say a, you know, a sibling or a parent or a child, your profile in a database like CODIS isn't as powerful because the searching is, is, is more limited with only 20 markers. And so I definitely encourage folks that are missing someone in their family to participate. I guess the, the best example in recent time is, is a case that we were involved in involving a, a woman called Evelyn Cologne. She was known as Beth Doe until her identification. She spent decades unidentified. Building a profile from, from her remains was a, a story that we could tell another day, but it was quite complex. But once we had built a profile, as it turns out, her cousin, I'm sorry, her nephew, her nephew had been looking for his aunt. And so he had uploaded his data into all the databases. And so guess what? There really wasn't an exhaustive genealogical component here. The profile goes up. There's a incredible match with a as they say, a lot of centimorgans, which is a unit of measure, you know, folks use to describe genetic relationship. And that's it. And so you could imagine if all the folks that were missing someone in their family were to put in, at least someone from their family puts in a representative profile. And if we could more exhaustively push to test all the unidentified remains, we'd get to do a lot of matching up of folks and their families very efficiently. So anyways, I, I went off topic, but the, the biggest difference with DNA solves is that it's not a it's not a consumer or like research database. It's a it's a registry that we keep of folks that either want to help solve a crime or are looking for a loved one. The database is available to anyone that is doing law enforcement work. So it's generally law enforcement, but I suppose if law enforcement were to authorize, you know, let's say a, a subcontractor, um, that's fine too. But this is no public search. I don't know how what better way to basically protect the privacy of people's information. And we're doing some other stuff that, that I think will, as we get closer to, um, you know, closer to being able to, we have a new matching algorithm that we're trying to work on to help kind of address some of these issues with older unidentified remains. I mean, the profiles are just sometimes hard to work with. So we're, we're looking into ways, is there any way to informatically improve the profiles or, or at least facilitate possible matching back to family? So those are all the kind of things we do on, on DNA solves. I guess the most recent thing that we've done is there is, as you can imagine, if you were to build a Venn diagram of all the folks that uh, have done genealogical testing because they're curious about their ancestry or their origins and all the people that are missing someone in their family, that's not a really great overlap. So there are plenty of people that are looking to participate or, or to, to, to match against, uh, whether to match against loved ones or to help solve a crime, but they may not have done a 23andMe test so, or an ancestry test or a family tree DNA test. And so we have launched a program to let people, again, if they want to get a swab kit and then, and then we can, we'll try to help that way. And we're trying to prioritize folks that, that are, anyone that wants to participate in principle could, but we're really trying to prioritize and go for folks that are really missing someone because I think that's the real mission behind all of this is like, how can we get people connected back to their families even after death? And so that's, that's kind of what it is in a nutshell. Again, like I said, we've been running it since 2019. You know, my perspective is like the more, the more data, the better. So the more databases, the better, the more resources, as long as all that information is uh, you know, properly consented and, and folks understand what they are and are not getting and what they are and they are not doing, I think it's a, it's a huge win for society and certainly a huge win for getting these cases closed. So David, you're talking about your new venture, which allows people to directly upload their DNA information. This is the, the new program you're calling the DNA Solves Connect program. Yeah, since you first set up DNA Solves, you've had an option where people can 
take a consumer DNA profile like 23andMe, Ancestry, Family Tree DNA, or GEDmatch, which probably would have picked up a DNA profile from one of those consumer databases. And you allowed us to upload our DNA profile electronically, is how I'll put it, to DNA Solves. Now you have this new Connect program, and for $14.95, which is incredibly affordable and cheaper than everybody Mm -hmm. else out there, Oh, yeah. You're now allowing people to spit in the tube, if you will. And it's, it's actually a swab. But yeah. The program came out of this, like I said, this like realization that there's really not a good overlap between folks that have done consumer testing and, and folks that want to participate, find a loved one, help solve a crime. And so what we've done for the last you know year and a half is we've we've basically told people, go go take a test somewhere and then come back and upload. Uh, and so we've been looking, you know, for a way that we could, in a, in a more efficient way, more cost-effective and efficient way, help people that want to participate, participate. And that's, and that's what the DNA Connect Solves Connect program is. Now, if you're looking to, to kind of like figure out your, your ancestry, go on this adventure of personal discovery, like you don't want to use DNA Solves Connect. It's not a genealogy test. So and we don't return any information. So it's a, you're literally just contributing a profile to, to help law enforcement match against unidentified remains or, or suspect DNA at a crime scene. So, so it's not useful for that. And so from that perspective, it's not a cost-effective way to do genealogy or learn about your history. In that case, there's already good options for that that we'll never be as good at. You know, you go to 23andMe, Ancestry, Family Tree DNA, you go to one of those companies and they've got a good number of folks to match against, really great tools to figure out, you know, where in the world you're from and so on. So this, this, this program that we're offering would be and so if you want to do that, you can do that kind of test, and then you can still upload to any of the databases that, that allow um, opt-in with law enforcement. We're not the only one. But if you're specifically interested in helping on a law enforcement case, and you're specifically not interested necessarily in ancestry, or you're, you're, you're not looking for whatever reason to participate in the other stuff, our system is only for folks that just want to essentially contribute their information to help work a cold case. I don't know how that's the best way I could say it. And so there's a very focused use case. And if that's what you want to do, then it's a good deal because it's pretty cheap and, and you can help us knock out more cases with law enforcement. If it's, uh, if it's not what you want to do, then it's, it's, it's not a good deal because, you know, from the perspective of a consumer genealogical product, you get nothing back. But yeah, I, I think I think that it addresses a need that we've consistently been hit with over the last you know year and a half, and so we just we felt it was the right time to kind of do that. And I think to be quite honest with you, we, we're really inspired by this Beth Dale case. I mean, it's obvious now that we describe it and talk to you about it. It's, like, it's obvious if you're missing someone. You know, the, the, the question in my mind is like, why why build this big old giant database, right? It's like, how do you build the smallest database? that can solve the most cases. That's really the puzzle that we're trying to ask, right? Because you don't want to swab the whole world. It's not really a good idea and it's, it's not cost effective. So it's like, what is the most effective way to build the smallest database and solve the most cold cases? You're listening to Mind Over Murder. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Many of you know that Authram is leading the way in DNA testing, helping law enforcement solve missing persons, homicides, and sexual assault cases across the United States and Canada using forensic-grade DNA tests. You can help this important cause by contributing funds and your DNA profile to Authram's free site, dnasolves.com. The process is easy and confidential. Just choose simple steps. 
Now DNA Solves has added another new feature, DNA Solves Connect, which will allow you to upload your DNA profile to help law enforcement, even if you've never used one of the commercial genealogy sites. If you're looking for a missing family member or have lost touch with someone, DNA Solves Connect is an incredible option at only $14.95. Upload your DNA profile to dnasolves.com. Join Mind Over Murder as we help families find answers with Authram and dnasolves.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're back here at Mind Over Murder. And I really think if you're missing someone in your family, we've got all these unidentified remains, that's, that's the approach. And so I don't think our database is the one way to do it. But I think our database would be a really great way to work, for example, unidentified remains. Because we're going to try to go market to folks and offer to folks that are missing someone in the family a way to basically join the registry and, and be, be part of that solution if we are able to get a case. And I think what really crystallized that in our mind was uh, Evelyn Cologne's case. And so obviously a horrible crime, And you know, but, but if there was any silver lining to being involved in the case at all, it would be that it kind of alerted us to this like amazing serendipity in that you know her family was on a quest and on an investigation completely unbeknownst to us and law enforcement as we were tracking on an investigation and and serendipity caused us to bump together so i think the best way to describe the dna salts connect program is our attempt to make that serendipity happen more frequently right like how do you how do you line folks up better so that there's a better chance that the next time we've got unidentified remains we've got the right pool of folks to go look to see who we can match them to well, I'm sure Evelyn Cologne's nephew, when he started that search for whatever happened to my aunt, you know, he'd heard about her. Here he is looking for her. He's living in New York City, but he has no idea that his aunt was murdered many years before and her body was dumped off a highway in Pennsylvania. It's only a few hours away, but as you've said before, David, you have these independent events. A young woman goes missing in New York City. Yeah. Remains are found a few hours away in Pennsylvania, but the connection isn't there. I'm sure this young man in searching for his aunt was hoping to find out that she was happily living somewhere and had, you know, moved and started a new life. And that wasn't the outcome that they ended up with. Although I suppose any of us in looking for answers like this, sometimes the answer that we get is not the answer that we were necessarily seeking. Yeah, no, look, I agree with you. And in fact, his wife actually uh, sent us a message on Twitter and, and she had, you know, her, her tweets up there. She had, she had said that although this was not the answer that her husband had anticipated, you know, in, in finding his, his aunt, there's some peace in knowing. And so mm -hmm. um, that's, that's literally what she said in, in a message to us. Interesting tidbit is that they're apparently based in Houston. So Another, another little. Oh gosh, lucky, lucky I, I associated I associated Evelyn with her life in New York City, but obviously that. Well, the, I think I think actually they're they're from Pennsylvania. I, I believe the person that she was with is now at the time of her death that's been uh, suspected of her death. 
he was uh, currently uh, in Queens, mm-hmm. but I think I think they were in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly. Or at least that's where her body was found. And I believe that, uh, but I believe that her nephew and 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 his wife, I believe they're based out of Houston. So, mm. oh, interesting, uh, small world. To, obviously, total, yeah, just a small world and a coincidence. I think that if you're missing someone, you're hopeful that they're missing and not deceased. But if you're missing someone, it, it makes sense to to contribute in this project. Because on the off chance that the person is no longer alive and further that, you know, someone is then found that ends up being, you know, the person you're looking for, there's, there's, a, there's at least a chance to, to have some knowing. So, you know, as, as, as his wife had said, you know, some peace in knowing what had happened. And, and again, it's specific to Evelyn's case. It's more than just peace in knowing what happened. Frankly, it's the ability for her family now to seek justice on her behalf. A lot of the times, and I think people don't appreciate this, a lot of the times when you can identify someone that was previously unidentified, it leads to clues like it did in this case. And the next thing you know it, law enforcement now knowing who the person is are able to piece those clues together and and very often find the person that might have been responsible for their death. And I think that's important too. So it's like a a two-part success in that you've connected people back to family and they know what happened and they get some amount of peace and can at least begin that healing process. Whereas prior to that, it's just infinite uncertainty, but also the ability, if you're fortunate and there's enough lines of evidence to connect the dots, you can, um, you can also even try to then seek justice for that person, find out what happened. If there was someone responsible and it was not a natural death, hold them responsible. And that's what's happening in the Evelyn Cologne case. So walk our listeners through this. They're intrigued. How do they sign up for the DNA Solves Connect program? They go to dnasolves.com, and then what are they looking for? Yeah, so you can, you can go to dnasolves.com. So there's a banner right now. If you go to dnasolves.com, there's a yellow banner at the top that announces the DNA Solves Connect program, and you can, you can just go there and, and take a look. Alternatively, if you go to the DNA Solves page on a normal day, there'll be a little button that says, you know, I'd like to, uh, to join. I'd like to contribute my DNA. And as soon as you click that button, you'll be prompted with a question. And the question will be, do you have a DNA profile, right? Did you do a test at a consumer company for which you can then download the data and upload it? If so, go here. And if you do not have data and you'd like to, you don't have a profile, but you'd like to contribute your DNA, then you could go here. And the second place you go is to the Connect program. The direct web address is connect dnasolves.com. So you can, you can get there through DNA Solves. You can go directly to connect.dnasolves.com. You can grab a kit and off you go. So in that way, you're able to join the, the DNA Solves registry of sorts, either through the contribution of DNA that is provided through a swab or data that you downloaded from another company that's done testing already. There's literally no reason, there's no reason at all to do a swab test if you've already tested with another company. We're not collecting better data or anything else. So, so definitely don't do it twice. The idea is that you just need a profile. You just need a set of markers, some markers. It doesn't even really matter what markers they are. You just want some markers that you can then contribute to make sure that you're in the system in case someone else comes out matching close to you. That's, that's really the only reason to do it. So you're, you're not looking for a genealogy product and you've never tested. If you've tested, testing twice doesn't help. David, it sounds like the network of missing persons organizations in particular should be encouraging people to sign up with DNA Solves because of what you've just outlined, this fantastic opportunity to help people who are looking for missing loved ones and 
those with potential victims, I think is what we're, we're talking about here, who've been lost to time, those families in particular should be taking a great amount of interest in the DNA Solves Connect program. Yeah, and honestly, when when people hear about what's possible, they they always take interest, right? It's it's like with any new thing, it's it's really less about getting someone interested and more about just letting them know what's possible. That they figure out on their own why it's useful. And so with new technologies, just getting the word out there. But I'll tell you a lot of the uh, organizations, most of them anyways, that are involved in identifying folks, um, you know, NICMEC, a lot of the other nonprofits, all these organizations, they all are very big on suggesting folks if they're, if they're interested to contribute to a database. And some organizations will say contribute to, uh, they have their favorite database. Some just say go to any database. But bottom line is the problem gets solved. Law enforcement has access to all of them, right? So all, all the databases that cooperate with law enforcement anyways, as long as your data is in a database that law enforcement has access to, then you're in a good spot. So obviously, if you've tested, let's say, with 23andMe and you want to help, like that's not sufficient. 23andMe doesn't work with law enforcement. Law enforcement doesn't go to 23andMe. So as long as you're working with a database of any kind that allows you to offer your information to law enforcement, then then you're in a good spot. And I think most of the organizations don't network. They all advocate for, uh, for folks to do that. For the benefit of our listeners, then, let's just recap which consumer databases are open to law enforcement search? There's three that I'm aware of, and I, and I think those are the three, but, but there's three that I'm aware of. There's, there's GEDmatch, right? So GEDmatch is, is, is largely a public database composed of folks that have tested at other companies. You don't, you don't test with GEDmatch, but you might have tested at 23andMe, and I might have tested at Ancestry, and we want to know if we're related, so we both upload our data to, uh, to GEDmatch. Kind of that was the original purpose is to allow cross-platform comparisons of genealogical relationships. So GEDmatch allows you to opt in and, and participate. And they have a certain set of rules that you read that explain how and, and how your data will and will not be used. The second database is Family Tree DNA. And so that is a company that offers testing. You can just do a test with them or you can upload data to them. And so whether you're testing with them or uploading data, again, much like GEDmatch, they kind of have a set of parameters that explain how your data might and might not be used to help solve a crime. And the third database is the one we talked about, DNA Solves, which like the other databases will allow law enforcement to work with them. It's just that that's all it does. And so, so you know, DNA Solves is, I would say, uh, kind of a more smaller focus. All it does is this one thing. And now with the DNA Solves Connect program, if you choose to participate, however, you have not taken a consumer test and you do not want to take a consumer test, then you have the option to use our, our DNA Solves Connect kit. Remember, those are your three databases. And you want to make sure in one of those three, so law enforcement has access, so that you're not in a situation where you've wanted to help, but you didn't put the data in a, in a form that law enforcement has access to it, and you might miss a connection. And just for clarity then, that means that if you have a DNA profile with Ancestry.com or 23andMe, or, or my heritage, my like heritage. Those, those profiles, those profiles are not accessed. They don't have an arrangement with law enforcement. So if you want to help, but you're in those uh, services, you'd want to then download your data. And we have instructions on DNA solves for how to do that. You'd want to download your data and then you'd want to upload them to a database that law enforcement can use. And at DNA solves, it's like a, it's, we have a, a, 
if you go to that contribute DNA button, you say that you've tested before, we have instructions for all the major services. And it's a, like a couple step process. You can get your data downloaded, prepare the file and send it up to our service. And then, and then you, can, you can have it loaded in. I mean, a while back I did my ancestry profile because I, mm-hmm. you know, I'd already gone down that road uh, with my brothers. And I, I found the whole thing pretty logical and easy to follow. You guys had set it up yeah. so that it, I'm not a technology person, as Kristen can tell you. I found it an easy step-by-step process to take my profile and put it up on DNA Solves. Got my confirmation. And I think for those of us that want to help with unsolved cases, missing persons, it's such an easy thing to do. And I think the addition of this very affordable $14.95 option, where if someone doesn't want to do the whole genealogy search, for whatever reason, they have no interest or they're concerned about privacy or whatever. Now you've given them another option, which is, okay, if you want to support missing persons, unsolved cases, et cetera, here's another option. And you will only be using this to help law enforcement solve cases. Yeah, I think I, I just think it's so important to have as many different options and parameters as possible. It's just hard to predict what any one person wants or will feel comfortable with. So you try a couple of different ways. And overall, at the end of the day, you're just trying to get the broadest participation possible from the folks that are, that are like I said, most likely to pair to unidentified remains uh, or most interested in helping solve a crime. I keep bringing up unidentified remains because that, that happens to be a key interest of mine. But I think, I think either way, it's like you just want to best connect in the most comfortable way possible people that want to participate in any of these programs with resources. And so having more databases, more ways, more different avenues by which they can participate, having more options is only a good thing. So that's kind of what inspired us to kind of take that leap into this new direction. And I hope that as the technology continues to improve, like I said, I mean, working from DNA that people previously thought was just not going to work at all. And as more people in the public get excited about the method and want to, you know, volunteer and be part of helping identify and, and kind of closing out the next cold case. And then as law enforcement and, and politicians also, because we didn't mention those two, like as they begin to see what's possible and also what the outcomes and what the, the, the good outcomes that could arise from this are, I think that'll also drive additional resources, even in the form of things like, you know, grant opportunities. You can see like the Saki program was designed originally to identify kits that had not been uh, tested and to facilitate, among other things, testing through CODIS. And you'll see like the latest versions of these documents now allow for other methods, such as, for example, uh, forensic genetic genealogy to help resolve cases where CODIS has been attempted, has been unsuccessful. So I think, I think all these things working together in better science, better participation from the crowd, and, and more funding opportunities as people realize how powerful the technique is and you know what outcomes are possible when you imply more than just CODIS. I think that's like the trifecta of getting these cold cases reduced. And in that case, coming back to your very first question about the silent mass disaster, that's what's going to help kind of reduce the scope and the severity of this problem. So David, we don't want to let you go without having you discuss your latest triumph. And that would be the Stephanie Isaacson case uh, to which you alluded earlier. And this one is out of the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Can you talk to us a little bit about Stephanie Isaacson and your solve there? This is a case. It was a a 14-year-old girl, Stephanie Isaacson, on her way to school. This was 1989. And she had taken a shortcut, as I think she's done before in the past, to get to her high school. And on this particular day, she didn't make it. And I believe her father called the school. They weren't able to get a hold of her. And 
Unfortunately, after a search, they found her. She had been murdered. She had been assaulted before being sexually assaulted before being murdered, and, and she was found on this path uh, a little bit away from, uh, from from where she would have normally taken that path to school. And they were able to eventually develop a CODIS profile. There was no match in CODIS, but over the years uh, they had pursued many leads. I mean, this is a case that I know they cared a lot about. Um, the reason I know is because we had not previously worked with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I know that it's been an interest of ours to get involved over there. And I actually came to them and said, um, not me, actually, my case manager, uh, Michael Bogan, went to them and said, look, we'd, we'd like to show you what can be done. You know, you pick the case, but let us let us help you work a case. Because DNA Solves has been thriving and growing, you know, we, we had identified a donor that was actually from Vegas. So this is what I told you. Sometimes people will, will connect on a case just because it's from their hometown and, and they want to do good in their area. And so, so we, we had a private donor that, that had already expressed interest in what we're doing. And so we went to Las Vegas uh, Metropolitan Police Department and we said, we'll fund the case through a donor. We can get a donor to cover the cost. We just want to help you work a case and show you kind of what can be done with this new technology. Yeah. And we did not pick the case. And the donor said he does not care. His, the donor's only requirements were, I want the case to be uh, from the Vegas area. And so with that in mind, the very first case, there wasn't any hesitation. It said, Stephanie Isaacson, this is a case that we really want to see solved. And, and my understanding in talking to law enforcement is that the family has kept in touch over the years. They really wanted it taken care of. So it's like very obvious the agency really cared about this case. The, the kind of the bad news is the first the first chance we get to look at the case, there's just very little DNA. And, and I'm, you know, I'm particularly scared about cases that have very little DNA and involve a sex assault because there'll generally be DNA, even at low levels, that are not just from the contributing suspect, but also from the victim because the DNA is found on the victim. And the technology used is very sensitive. Even if you have a profile that appears, as they say, single source, when it goes to CODIS, does not mean that there isn't other DNA there at lower detectable levels. And so we were anxious about working the case, but we have had a lot of success in, in, in similar cases. I think I told you last time we talked, one of our steps of prioritization of casework is, you know, have we done something similar that has worked out well? We don't want to make any one case the guinea pig. And we've had a lot of success in the last six months, just getting very, very, very low on quantity. We worked last year, if you remember, the Rodney Johnson case out of Snohomish County, 180 right. grams. But again, that was a single source ID of an unknown person, which in some ways might be a little easier than, for example, trying to sort out a sex assault with 120 picograms, which is what we had in this case. The, none, nonetheless, we took the case. I was over the moon when the lab was able to build a profile and not just a profile. It's the important thing is that you can build a profile from anything. But the question is, can you build a profile that works, can be uploaded to a database can produce viable leads and can lead to a answer about uh, you know who might have left that DNA. And all of that ended up being true. The genealogical search and the family tree research was done in-house at Optrum by our team. And we came back with some leads that we passed back to the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And at that point, they involved their cold case detective who's worked this case for years. And she's also just really fired up about it. This is part of the magic. These cases get worked because we got new technology, but we also got law enforcement folks that are just really on fire. They want to chase every lead and they want to get the case closed. In this particular case, it was very interesting because the person that we thought was a candidate, you know, we always call it a candidate. Law enforcement confirms the suspect, but the person that we thought was a candidate was implicated in the 1986 crime. So three years earlier in the um, sex assault and murder of another woman. The case had gone to court. I don't know all the details, but it looks like it was dismissed for lack of evidence. This is 86. 
You don't have you know broad usage of CODIS. I don't, I don't even know anything about the case, but the point is there was already uh, another implication there. The guy that they were looking at uh, had committed suicide in 95, but his DNA, his profile was on, on, on file because of his involvement in uh, this other case that they had tied him to. And so they did, all the work Authorum does, as you know, is investigative leads only. So we're just, this is a lead. But they did a STR to STR match from the crime scene of Stephanie Isaacson with this DNA that they had from this other crime scene that they know was his. He was a match. And so it's, uh, in a sense, there's uh, some, some closure in the sense that they know what happened to their daughter. On the other hand, their daughter obviously cannot be brought back. And, and unfortunately, the guy is dead, uh, long, long since deceased and not able to stand trial. So it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit of, a, of an unfortunate situation. But, but the good news is we were able to help them get some answers. I know, I know the family wanted answers. I know the family was quoted in the press as saying they thought the case would never get solved. And I told you earlier in our, in our chat, like just the optimism that if you can work a case like this, you can work other cases. Mm-hmm. And so this guy that, that, that donated, his name is Justin Wu. He was also, he was named as both an anonymous donor and Justin Wu. So I, I, I now call him Wu-anonymous. Is actually what I call him. The last time I talked to him, I, I referred to him as Wu-anonymous. Um, and so, so Wu-anonymous has now gone on to, he wants to fund more cases. That's amazing. And, uh, that's and you awesome. know what? And I think at some point. That's awesome. That's yeah, fantastic. You guys should also refer to him as Wunonymous. I'm starting a movement. <laughs> well, I, so, if, he, um, if he doesn't mind being teased this way, because it was wonderful of him to put up this money. It was. It was really wonderful to put it up. I, I don't know if he minds or not. So so maybe 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 we'll just keep this as an inside joke for the <laughs> listeners of your podcast. Um he was so excited that, that we were able to help law enforcement and that his help went to a positive outcome that he, I could probably call him anything and he's fine. He was really excited. He was on vacation in Greece. Uh, I, don't, I don't respect people's time zones. And so I immediately told him the news when it was publicly announced. And, uh, and oh, he, he had just, to be just, thrilled. Oh, yeah. He was so excited. He, I, he actually went on to social media and said the only thing more exciting than vacationing in Greece is knowing that he was able to play a part in closing wow. this case. And, wow. you know, it's, I could talk about technology all day long, but here's another example where without public support and or funding, like how does the case get worked? There's, there's, there's no way. I mean, the law enforcement cannot work a case if there's no funding. You know, Authoring can't work a case without funding. So I think that obviously anytime there's philanthropic contribution, it's, it's, it's wonderful, but it's obviously not the only way. And it can't be the only way that, that you solve these cases. But what's exciting about uh, Justin Wu's contribution is that he funded a kind of a pilot study, showed what can be done, and it's got law enforcement fired up. And there are, there are grant opportunities for all these agencies through Saki, through BGA in general. Um, the DOJ makes available a lot of opportunities. And now they've got a wonderful success story to use as the launch pad for securing larger amounts of funding from the government, from other agencies. There are nonprofits that fund these cases. Uh, I'm sure you saw uh, the folks behind uh, AudioChuck have launched a nonprofit season of justice. Yes. They, uh, they're, they're a wonderful organization that have funded authoring cases. So there are many ways to get this done. But the, but the key thing is people need to see the technology in action and they need to know about it. They need to hear the good news when there's good news to share. They need to hear about these feats of low amounts of DNA, you know, DNA that was degraded. They need to see what's possible because that's what inspires folks to want to be part of the solution in the next case. And it's also what drives folks to demand these solutions. This isn't a technique that's like a, a lucky break that sometimes will work. This is a technique you should expect to be applied to a good number of cold cases. 
And every time we have a positive outcome, or really anyone has a positive outcome, it really builds that case that this is not this is not a novelty. This is an expected and an ordinary outcome of using good technology to read evidence from a crime scene. If our listeners do want to help by funding a case, where can they go to contribute? Anyone that wants to help, you know, we obviously have some nonprofits. We have uh, you know, there's grant funding, there's private donors like uh, Woononymous, but but anyone can get involved in a case by just going to dnasolves.com. I mean, you can chip in five bucks. We have, we have cases that we just crowdfund. Not every case we have is, is sponsored by an organization or a private donor. And so we have uh, Jane and John Doe's that, that otherwise don't have the resources or, or necessarily the priority to be worked. And so we post them. You can chip in a dollar, $2, whatever you want. If you don't want to chip in money, you can select the, the, the case that's interesting to you. Go share it. Others may be interested. Sometimes even sharing the news about a case will generate a tip. Back to our earlier discussion of DNA Solves and DNA Solves Connect, if you want to share your own data. So there's, there's many ways to get involved. It all happens at dnasolves.com. And anyone can get involved, either spreading the news, um, chipping in a few bucks, or, or contributing their own data. And it may, it may sound like a kind of a, you know, what does it help if I chip in a few bucks or I put in my profile? Any one profile, unless you're directly related, of course, any one profile or any $1 is not necessarily going to move the needle. But when you have the public in, as a whole interested and inspired and working towards this, mm-hmm. um, there are huge things that can be done. I, I have to believe this is what the internet was made for, is like massive collaborative team projects. And, and I can't think of one that's more exciting to be involved in than trying to go work through these cases that feel hopeless. And everyone's like, ah, they're hopeless cases. And then we come in and like I said, a little bit of support from the crowd, sprinkle in a little bit of uh, cutting edge genomics and some really great investigative work from law enforcement. And, and wow, all of a sudden, these cases that are unsolvable are suddenly solvable. I can't think of a better way to close out this inspiring episode. Although I will tease Kristen that it is important that cat pictures be included as well. Oh yeah, of course. That's a good use for the internet. <laughs> That's uplifting. One, one more shout out to Anonymous. We're not us. <laughs> yeah, we promise uh, if Mr. Wu tells us to stop making uh, jokes, uh, we will absolutely stop because we very much appreciate what he's done. Well, you know, we could we could go with like Woonomics. <laughs> he pro- I hope I hope he will hear this and love it and not <laughs> if he tells us I'm gonna, to stop, I'm gonna, we'll I'm gonna stop. call in a yeah, I'm gonna call and apologize before this airs. <laughs> By the time he hears it, he'll be fine with it. <laughs> I'll just tell you in, in, as a parting note, he's, he's a really great person. He runs a, he's, he funded this case on his own. Unrelated to this case, he runs a nonprofit charity in Vegas called Vegas Helps. So he actually loves doing good things for lots of people in all sorts of areas. This case was funded personally by him, unrelated to the charity. But, um, but yeah, I would definitely look him up just to move. David, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. And thank you so much for all that you do to help us with our podcast. Uh, Authorm is one of our sponsors. And so we do encourage everybody to go check out DNA Solves and everything associated with Authorm because they are doing excellent, excellent work. David, congratulations on an excellent solve as always. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to chatting with you guys about cases in the future. And that's going to do it for this episode of Mind Over Murder. We'll see you next time. Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions. Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. 
Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook. And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56. Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder. <laughs>